Today's episode is brought to you by the Sounds and Cinema podcast and the Brew Bar. Everything sequel contains explicit language. And why the fudge not, you melon farmer? Hello and welcome to the Everything Sequel Podcast. This is the Batman edition. Oh, the Batman and Robin edition, I might add. My name is Michael Schantz of the How Dare You Awards. Joining me, your friend and mine, Tom Stewart of Lonesome Whistle Productions. What line from this shitty movie do you have for me, Tom? This is why Superman works alone. <laughs> I have been I don't know if see that's that that line is fascinating to me because were it in a a uh contemporary DC a good movie? It was in a were it in a <laughs> contemporary DC universe movie, we would know full well that that he was referring to an in-universe Superman. Right. In 1997 I'm just as willing to believe that this is a universe where Superman is a fictional figure. Right. Yeah. That is is a comic, you know, a comic book character. Well, but you have the added line of the circus must be halfway to Metropolis by now. So it is I think in universe. Well, yeah, and the the other explanation is we have to give Joel Schumacher more credit for um for his Do his, we? His world building, which you know he's like twenty, he's like twenty years ahead of the curve, on uh, you know franchise um, comic book universe building. Right. Um, but I, I I wanted to to briefly go back to something it didn't mention from Batman Forever, which is that Gotham City seems to have the Statue of Liberty. Yes, I, th- this was one of my biggest notes that we didn't get to. <laughs> Yeah, because we because that movie's a pile of shit, so right. we had to, we had to wade through that pile of shit. <laughs> there was there was too much shit to talk about. <laughs> it was a it was a, a a shit piece in a shit stack. Yes, but and it's, it's just one phrase. of those. It's just one of the it's a coin of phrase, but it's just one of those things where you think. Like, what was Schumacher thinking? Did he think he was fooling us by just putting Gotham on the top of it? But but we've we've had this discussion before with regards to uh, how Superman, the uh, Christopher Reeve iteration of, right. of Superman, took ownership of New York as, as indistinguishable from Metropolis. Yeah, I, I don't know if this is Joel Schumacher claiming it back for Gotham City. And right. it just kind of keeps getting handed back and forth between Superman and Batman. Yeah. Because, you know, as we mentioned... And don't the... forget, he manages to allow Lady Liberty to be destroyed. Yes. <laughs> Indeed. So, uh... Yeah, so I, I I'm starting to think maybe a uh, that there's not a there's not a consistent fictional universe here. <laughs> <laughs> Just a suspicion. Well, the one thing that these last two movies 
the last thing these two movies are <laughs> is consistent. I think this this movie is is more of is more consistent with with its insanity. I don't. Yes. Th- I, 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 I'm going to put it this way. I don't think this movie is apologetic in the way the in the way that Batman Forever is about some of its sillier elements. Like yeah, I think ba- no. Batman Forever is a little bit like. Is a it little... okay we do this? Exactly, yeah. yeah. Whereas this movie's not asking permission. Right. No, you're right about that. <laughs> I wasn't but asking, I, guess... I was telling you, this is what we're doing. Freeze you guns. Know, we started this series by me telling you that this was the easiest ranking and the easiest good or bad I, I would ever have. Yeah. But simultaneously, we also have dropping right now on the Everything Sequel podcast is the Karate Kid series. Mm-hmm. And I'm seeing parallels between how we feel about those movies and how we feel about these movies. And, and I have the same buyer's remorse with regards to both movies. <laughs> in declaring both of them good and thinking about and what's above. in them. Thinking about what's right, actually right. in them. <laughs> so that's the thing. And so... For me, I think how I feel about both series, but this movie, Batman and Robin in particular, is really wrapped in to my first viewing of it. Do tell. And, and, the, and how I felt about the series as a whole. And mm-hmm. I'm realizing that I'm not willing to let go of how infuriating I found the movie upon my first viewing. Hmm. And I was not willing to forgive it for the things that it didn't do instead well, that, of yeah. possibly celebrating the things that it did do. Because you're right, this is the full camp version mm-hmm. of these Batman movies. On that level, it's a complete success of nonsense and bullshit. But just to just to meet, meet you in the middle um, a little bit, because... Uh, I think it's perfectly reasonable what you're saying. <laughs> um, I realize, sort of thinking about, like thinking about this movie and what happens in it, like the obviously the the compar <laughs> the comparison to the '60s Batman TV series is certainly there, but I also it's there writ large. Well, yeah, like, but it's all it is. But that series ran for a long time. Okay. Right. This is this uh to me is more reminiscent of towards the end of the Batman TV series when <laughs> we're starting to get a right. lot of villains and henchmen you've never heard of. Mhm. Um and you know you've you've really kind of played out every single idea and just in terms of 60s TV more generally I think this this Batman and Robin is located in the Venn diagram between a late series installment of Batman, the TV series, and a mid-quality episode of Bewitched. <laughs> That's where this movie lies. Because yes. I don't, I don't, I, you know, I, I, I think there, you know, this is, this is not the Batman TV series firing on all cylinders. 
Um, this is like well, the, the Batman TV is... series, a particularly weak episode. Yeah. Uh, that has pro- that is probably rewritten from a spec script of Bewitched. <laughs> <laughs> and then, well, for me, the other thing is, and we talked about this in the last episode, is how far we've fallen. I will say from the second sequel of Batman Returns to this movie. So, because this is part of a series, and because the first sequel was Batman Returns, mm-hmm. I can't view this movie as anything but a complete and total abject failure. I mean, it's like, this movie is a failure on that level. I'm like... For well, yeah, series, but if you're not if you're I'm not like, aiming for, I'm like a, a an abused husband <laughs> who keeps going back to get smacked around by his wife because I love Batman. Right. So I'd see a preview and I'd think maybe they won't fuck it up, and I go back, and Batman Forever and Batman and Robin is what I got, which was essentially me getting punched in the face repeatedly. It's it's really the the nature of how they fuck it up that I find endlessly fascinating. Yes, right. And you know, uh, you know, as I men- as I mentioned in previous episodes, I'm I'm trapped between two poles here because I do think it's so bad it's good, but I also think it's good enough at times. So this this is why I declared this a good movie, despite um, nobody else in the world being on your side. Y- yeah. Uh, and it possibly not being true in, right, you know, right. in reality, in, in objective reality, yeah. because, you know, I, I'm coming, I'm right in the middle of those two, like the deliciously bad meets the, um, the absurd yet competent. <laughs> and that's where, I, again, I feel this movie is, is, uh, is kind of right in the apex of that anus. <laughs> that's a t-shirt the apex Next. of the anus <laughs> oh fuck all right well i'll let you know tom as you try to build your argu- your argument that we spoke in the last episode or in the last couple episodes batman returns 80 percent on rotten tomatoes <laughs> I don't want to know. I don't want to know. Forever, thirty nine percent on Rotten Tomatoes. I'm shocked that this movie got all the way to double digits at eleven percent for Batman and Robin. This movie increased That's damning, the budget. Though. This this movie That's increased barely its... double digits. I know. Yeah, barely. Uh, this movie increased the budget yet again from a hundred million to hundred and twenty five million. So we went eighty, a hundred, one twenty five for the sequels. Uh, did not make its money back in the USA, which is the clear sign of you're not going to make any more movies for Hollywood. 107.3 million in the world, 238.2, all of which is less than Batman Returns, which, as we discussed, was a movie people didn't really know what to do with because it had an $80 million budget. That movie has absolutely made money and, and is a success. But in comparison to the first Batman, it was far less money, and so people considered it considered it a bit of a failure because you're supposed to make more money. But I mean, it sounds like people were, you know, were immediately prejudiced against this movie. And, and it was like an, it was like an instant, uh, bad. It was like an instant 
bad classic, right? From the sounds of it. Yeah. There was no, there's no, because I mean, you know, the, it's interesting when you look back at the history of, of, you know, canonically bad movies, and you've discussed this with Ishtar, the, there's also interesting to look at early reviews mm-hmm. of The Phantom Menace and how that image of the movie built up over time was, was kind of, uh, was accelerated by fandom and its bullshit. Um, and the fact that, you know, like, critical opinion was split early on. <laughs> On 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 a lot of the on a lot of the movies, uh, and then that was distorted later by fandom and and yeah. you know a kind of myth that this this is you know everyone always hated it, but it sounds like no one ever liked Batman and Robin, correct, <laughs> which is unusual for in the in the kind of the cycle of bad movie criticism, which is usually after the fact. I find, mm-hmm. because uh, but. Which surprises me because this is such an entertaining movie. <laughs> I mean, it's entertainment at the expense of everything else, including logic, taste, oh, yeah. physics, style, uh, competency. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, it's like. It's weird that people reject something that's trying so hard to dazzle them. Strange to me. Well, but I think what I spoke to earlier plays a part in that. I think I think because the first two Batman movies are so different than these last two movies and because they are at least now kind of almost universally regarded as good movies, I think that hurts people's feelings about this movie. Mm. I think because it started off so dark and interesting and became so light and campy, people couldn't, you know, I just said, I spoke to it that I myself cannot, I couldn't get over the hump of trying to see what this movie did on its own. Hmm. Because all I could do was compare it to the first two movies. And in comparison to the first two movies, it's nothing but failure. Standing on its own. Yeah. Interesting. I think you might be right. I think it, you know, it is. It's still bad. Yeah. It's But it's ridiculously bad and can't be bad and in a it, way that is probably it's more entertaining. It is probably more entertaining than Batman Forever. It I'm, underst- star- I'm starting to think you might be right about that. Well, here's what I realized watching it this time around. This movie understands kitsch yeah. from a historical viewpoint. I mean, we, we talked about the, you know, the 1995-ness of Batman Forever. Uh, this movie, I'm not going to go as far as to say it feels timeless because Joel Schumacher's still doing the Dayglow Warrior shit right. and that's and it, that was dated in 95 now it's two yeah. years later um but there there are certain moments in the film that the the uh the introduction of poison ivy um which quotes uh a gorilla striptease from the movie blonde venus for marlena dietrich 1932 holy moly uh, yeah like it's a direct quote direct uh 
piece into textual quote. The Droogs from Clockwork Orange. Yeah, I noticed briefly. the Droogs. I noticed the Droogs. It's one of my notes. I said, what the fuck are the Droogs doing here? The Dr. Rud- Dr. Rudwo, you know, that uh, as broadly as possible applies all the um, all the imagery from the first couple of uh, Frankenstein movies from Universal mm-hmm. in the early 30s. So... I feel like, I I feel like uh, you know added to that obviously uh, I think Bewitched is there I think the nineteen sixties um, uh, Batman series is there so I have a you know I'm not saying that excuses everything but that added to the fact that and again I'm hesitant to say this because I don't know how self aware this movie is but there are times in the movie where it seems to be in on the joke to the point where it almost feels like a, a Batman SNL sketch sometimes. Yes, yes, absolutely. And all those, you know, all that kind of, all that speaks to a kind of a awareness and understanding of what it's doing, even though what it's doing tends towards awfulness. It's a kind of studied awfulness that I kind <laughs> <Right>. of... <laughs> appreciate in the movie <laughs> and i'm genuinely surprised uh you know if you told me that john waters made this movie i might believe you right no yeah. <laughs> because yeah. the level of bad taste is uh something to behold it's it's you know it it's remarkable it really is yeah. I mean, this movie at least twice, maybe three times, has Robin bursting through doors in vehicles or motorcycles or whatever, in which he leaves a Robin-shaped hole <laughs> through whatever he just came through, which right. infuriates me based on how I know the world works, but... <laughs> But but makes complete sense for what they were doing for this movie. Yeah. And so the fact, you know, and there's just, like we talked about this in the last episode, this movie starts with, with a complete recycling of the last movie. The whole first montage is <laughs> exactly what happened in the first movie. They're grabbing their stuff. We're seeing butts. We're seeing boobs. We're seeing nipples. We're seeing mm-hmm. crotches. We're just seeing more of it. Chicks dig the car. I want a car. That's a recycled joke from you know the first the or the movie that preceded it. Yeah, they just they just uh, um, pass off the dialogue to to Robin. Same dialogue. Right. Um, the lo- logo has become incredibly complicated. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. This weird interlocking the logo, logo takes Batman like a and Robin logo. I mean, that says it all about to come together. If your logo is a mess, your film is probably <laughs> going to be a mess too, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's. It, I mean, it's it's a it's a fascinating opening for that reason. It, it's interesting to compare it to Batman Forever because. Uh, you know, and we noted there that they kind of took you on a journey of the franchise. The the Warner Brothers logo went monochrome, then yeah. it went neon, mm-hmm. and here we get the slightest hint of monochrome, and then straight into the batsicle, and a red screen, and it's like yeah. it's like Tim Burton's gone, guys. 
Yeah. <laughs> he is long gone. Um, but I, I, I mean, you know, elephant in the room, George Clooney taking over as as Batman. Uh, so in this opening scene, there are two legacy characters and legacy actors. Neither of them are Batman. Yeah, right. <laughs> Alfred and Robin are the continuing characters and actors here. Do you think that hurts this movie? Um. It it would if 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 Kilmer had been more effective. I mean, they're they're still introduced. Right. They still and you know it, it's an it's a complete recycle to the point where they're introducing Batman, not George Clooney's Bruce Wayne. Like they mm-hmm. they're they're that it's Batman forward. So they're kind of they're not again. I don't think they're concealing quite as much as they were doing with Kilmer in the last movie. But they they want you to see Batman first and George Clooney second. Um, But I kind of like how this movie, you know, gets on with it. Uh, I guess it comes out of the gate, I think, fairly, fairly strong. Um, With the with the with the ice skaters. (laughs) Well, the first action. Well, the first like, you know, it, it it kind of. And you're gonna attribute this to my Bond love, but it just you know the it, it's like a of course even though we've seen titles, it's like a cold open. It's like a Bond cold open. It's like he's immediately yeah. out on a mission, right? Um, which they do in the last movie, but I feel like this sequence is more exciting and interesting. See, I think that's where you know. I think that first sequence. I couldn't recognize the movie for what it was. I, you know, I see people skating on ice, which, which is full on looks like sixties, you know, the sixties TV show. Yeah. But I, I guess the thing that bothered me is again, Robin is bursting through the door with a, on his motorcycle with a, a Robin shaped hole. Um, people are grabbing poles and just putting them on the ground without really doing anything that resembles a pole vaulting maneuver, and yet they're pole vaulting 70 feet into the air. Yeah. That kind of shit, Um, which both Robin and Mr. Freeze does, and he's wearing 75 pounds worth of ice gear. Mm -hmm. And you and I were just talking about, uh, you know, know, I just... I was kind of done with this movie early on my first viewing when mm-hmm. Batman and Robin take a rocket ship into outer space with one of them on the fucking outside of said rocket ship. Yeah, what is Robin breathing that we don't what, know? What, yeah. And then they use the doors of said rocket ship to surf back down to Earth, and one of them actually says the words cowabunga. Mm-hmm. Like he's Bart Simpson. <laughs> he's Bart Simpson. And let's face it, at that point, and I'm might like, as well be. I'm out. <laughs> well, yeah, I no. mean, this was this was uh, this was my Moonraker moment. <laughs> it was just like, <laughs> and in Moonraker, you know, when Roger Moore flies unaided in the cold open of Moonraker, it's a similar thing here. I'm like, you can no longer attribute any kind of real world logic to this franchise anymore. No, yeah, right. Which is, I mean, ironic for the fact that this may be the most science-based of all the storylines. I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, but you, it, that's the thing I just could not forgive this movie for. Like, not then, and clearly not now, based on my rankings and my declarations. It, it's funny, um, like, it. in order to get started quickly, uh, like, this movie not only repeats dialogue from the pre- and visuals from the previous yeah. movie, um... It also has this, you know, the, uh, the, the, you know, instead of seeing Commissioner Gordon, he's on a TV screen in the car, mm-hmm. a la Basil Exposition in the Austin Powers movies. Right. Um, but, the, but then there's what I, what I kind of termed placeholder dialogue. That's like, I swear in the shooting script, they accidentally switched the real lines with, kind of like what they had as a placeover <laughs> because at one point Batman says hi freeze I'm Batman yeah. <laughs> yeah so I guarantee you Ulysses like something like this but you know punched up a little bit but that was what they ended up with well I think part of that was introducing the new Batman don't you think that's part of the idea behind that yeah but I think in in the writer writer's room, I'm being generous here. What whatever whatever environment this script was written on a toilet, I'm assuming in the, in the cage with the monkeys. <laughs> they were like, it's like this is someone wrote this out and said this is what we want to say, but we want to find a cleverer, better, set, punchier way to say it. And, yeah, we'll do it later. We'll punch it we'll up do, later. We'll do it later. It's like, it's like ah, okay, well now we're filming, so. Uh, there's a lot right. of ice. Well, there's a lot of ice and water sculptures here. I don't have time to rewrite dialogue. I just I can't write that dialogue right now, ladies and gentlemen. We're just getting started with Batman and Robin, a 1997 film by your friend and mine, Joel Schumacher. We're gonna take a break real quick, and then we'll come back and we'll dive deeper into this film. Sound good, Tom? Uh sure, sure. All let's right. uh, let's let's navigate that shit pile. <laughs> Navigate it, we will. Put on your goggles. Here we go. We'll be right back. If you like podcasts like I do, boy, do I have a treat for you. You need to stay on target and check out the Sounds and Cinema podcast. Listen as your host, sound designer and music creator, Tony Parham, and co-host, musical performer and sound lover, Derek Hansen, D-Rock if you're nasty, and I am, discuss all things sound related to film, television, stage, and theatrical productions. They discuss environmental sounds, bioacoustics, dialogue, the nature of communication through sound, but as an added bonus, they drink beer and try to... Stay on target! Find them wherever you get your podcasts and listen to the pure mania of a man who can charitably be described as Doug, the dog from Up, and another man with a soothing and sultry voice trying to get that man to... Stay on target! That's the Sounds and Cinema Podcast. Tune in and listen to the sounds they are creating just for you. And we're back. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, I'm laughing already, Tom. Tom and I are here discussing the 1997 <laughs> sequel. Because Batman you enjoyed this movie. I mean, but, you're on, but society won't let you admit it to yourself. <laughs> I want to. Can I? Can I uh, chip in with a brief uh, anecdote? Yeah, go ahead. Um, it relates to the. Uh, so there's a, a 
British film critic uh, called uh, Jonathan Ross. Well, he's a TV host, but at the time he was employed by a newspaper as their their um, their movie critic, okay. and he uh, had a bet with another movie critic uh, called Paul Gambaccini, um, to see if they could get because when they were both went to see Batman and Robin, both hated it. And they had a bet between them to see who could get their quote from the from their review on the poster. Oh, okay. So they intentionally gave the movie great reviews, like said exultant things about it that were completely <laughs> disingenuous just to try and get on the on the poster and they both got on the British version of the poster. That is fucking great. So that that I mean, that's another reason why I think the the film criticism around this movie is unusual because like the only nice thing said about it is part, part of a bet between quit critics to get on the poster. <laughs> that's fucking great. That's yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, you were talking about elephants in the room. We got to talk about top build Arnold Schwarzenegger as Mr. Freeze, don't we? Yeah, I I, I was I mean, you know, I it was it was startling to see that he was top bill, but then I remembered that Jack Nicholson's above Michael Keaton in the original Batman, correct? Opening credits, but not ending credits, yeah. Right. And then, of course, you have the Gene Hackman, Christopher Reeve precedent from Superman. Yeah. Uh, and then, as we saw in Superman 2, Ned Beatty, because they did it in alphabetical order, is in about 40 <laughs> seconds of that movie, but gets top billing because his name starts with B. Yeah. Um, so I, I, after that, you know, with that bit of context, I thought, okay, and you know, you you forget, like relative to everyone else in the movie, he's by far the biggest star. Yeah. There, um, and at uh, least then. Yeah, and you know, just to, just some kind of overall things about this, about the execution of Mister Freeze, uh, in this movie by Arnold Schwarzenegger, while. I don't think it works. <laughs> I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I don't think it works. You want to hear something funny? You think it does? I think he might be the best thing in the movie. That was what I was going to say. <laughs> He's, yeah. I mean, certainly the best villain in the movie, hands down. Um, I think he deals with a lot of the comedy admirably, and this is something that, very few right. people are willing to admit about Schwarzenegger is that he can be funny and right. he has a couple of lines here when he says it makes you look slimmer <laughs> and uh, a laundry service that delivers yeah right I'm like oh he does he, he he handles that really well I I also think that that um you know in terms of what it's done to what it does with what it does with Schwarzenegger's star image uh, is pretty radical. Um, well, well, so because I mean, you know, his his story is interesting because he what do you he, mean? he like in comes terms into of the business what he was heavies, offered after, or that kind goes of through story? a villain stage, then very quickly becomes the hero of everything he's in, and here he's kind of caught between right. those two sides of his star persona right because he's a he he he's a he's a sympath he's a villain with a sympathetic 
backstory uh, who eventually becomes a Batman yeah. ally. Spoiler alert. Um, but if you, He's I was a say, if you haven't seen this movie, villain, right. we might as well be speaking in wingdings. For I mean, it will make no sense. You have to see this movie. Um, so I think that's in you know where he was in his yeah. career. I think it was a it was actually yeah. a bold choice to to cast him. I think he does fine with a lot of it. Uh, I kind of like his uh, in terms of the character. I kind of like the story. I think his plan as a villain is clearer than any of the other villains up until this point. Like he wants to reanimate his dead wife. That's it. Um, and then, yes, you know, the, the crux, I like the way that his story, um, right. Uh, interweaves with the, with the Alfred storyline. That was a nice, I think that was a nice bit of writing. And, so that they become interdependent and then at the end of of the movie something right. we haven't seen before like the the whole the whole movie hangs on a villain having a change of heart which he does so there's a lot of interest there's a lot of interesting stuff novel stuff bound up in this mr freeze character uh but right. i think you know the problems that are inherent in him only speaking in puns and like seventy five percent ice puns is what people remember. But there, there is actually there is the the nucleus of a of a successful villain and a successful villain arc there. Yeah. I think. I agree. Um, I also I was a little alarmed about about might... how much he looked like Mola Ram from Temple of Doom <laughs> in the when he's in the makeup. <laughs> But apart from that, I mean, it's not. I think a lot of it is bound up with snob snobbery of like George Sanders, you know, noted British theatre actor, played Mister Freeze in the sixties TV series, mm -hmm. and I think people, whether they know it or not, are, are comparing it to that. And he's just not suave enough, no, yeah. and debonair enough for that. But he's doing a different kind of uh, suave and debonair. I think a kind of. I don't know. It's a really interesting departure for Arnie, is basically what I'm saying, and I don't think that's been been celebrated and enough. Compared, and and compared to the to how you know the other performance, many of the well, other. Well, I was going to say the, the other movies, thing which is he's die on their ass. It's a success story. Yeah, because for me, he seems to be the one person in this entire movie that knows exactly what movie he's in. Well, yeah, I mean, some of my favorite moments in the movie are his um, his uh, villain's lair, you know, his frozen villain's lair where he makes everyone watch old Christmas TV specials and right. keeps his wife in a keeps his wife in a freezer with frozen dinners and ice cream. We called it uh, we used to we used to, you know, years and years and years ago when this movie came out, we had we had a tradition of of renting a terrible movie having an awful lot of alcohol and then, you know, Mystery Science Theater 3000 style, just making fun of mm -hmm. it and making up dialogue for it. Oh, and you've come so far since then, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> My life. It's like night and day. <laughs> Nothing's changed. But one of the best lines we ever came up with is when we're introduced to his wife and you have this 
kind of, you know, at least three, four, five seconds of him longingly without dialogue looking up at her. Mm. And somebody in the room said, as the voice of the wife said, uh, I've fallen in love with someone else. I'm leaving you. Mm-hmm. And then another person in the room replied, while you were in the bubble tank? It's <laughs> <laughs> so, so one of my favorite made-up lines that, ever, while you were in the bubble tank. Because that's really all this isolated chamber for his wife is, is a tank with bubbles. It, I mean, there's very, there's very little in this movie that you can relate to on a on a sincere emotional level no, yeah on arnie and his dead wife uh, uh mr freeze and his dead wife and alfred and his illness is about Pumps it is, yeah right and they're all kind of part of the same storyline mm-hmm. so i think the problem is everything in and around that thank god alfred was suffering from just stage one yeah that didn't require a bubble tank <laughs> And you, I mean, we are, while while we're on the subject, uh, so uh, you know the. I re I I'm struggling. I struggle to find anything. Ironically bad about all the scenes between Clooney and Goff, which relate to Bruce's childhood and his illness. I think they're perfectly well written, perfectly well directed, and well acted too. I actually prefer them to what I think. I think they give teary-eyed Michael Caine, you know, like, over and Christian Bale a run for their money. Mm-hmm. I actually prefer the brevity of that, to be honest. I don't like how much it overtakes those movies. I always you know? really liked them together in those movies, but here's yeah. here's what I want to ask you. Because there's something I noticed really a lot upon this viewing. I mean, look. Love George Clooney. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. I think I know where you're going. But what I didn't realize was this early on in his film career, mm-hmm. he does have a Clooney shtick. You know you know what I call it? What? Bobblehead acting. Okay. He's like a human bobblehead. Throughout, uh, up until I'm trying to think of what the cut. So in in the mid to late nineties, Clooney's Clooney had some kind of nerve disorder <laughs> that made his head bubble like an like an actual dashboard bubble head right. whenever he acts. You watch all the ER. Well, but I was gonna say like the thing for me is whatever that shtick was, it worked for the character in ER. I think that's why we were all drawn to him and that character. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can see it at play in From Dusk Till Dawn, but when I saw that movie, I remember thinking, I believe that he is a bad person and a bit of a To be fair, he had Quentin Tarantino that's true. to outact. That's true. <laughs> but, it's not like he's acting with Patrick Stewart. Right. <laughs> But I I know exactly what you're but, saying, and you're but right. But at any rate, yeah, I just... And then all of a sudden, you, you see him in in this movie, and you see... I don't know how to explain it. Maybe he, you know... Maybe he wasn't ready to be number one on the call sheet quite yet. 
or maybe there was an uncomfortability with that because yeah. of the broadness of how big a movie this is. You know, I, I sort of, I I kind of want, you know, I'm trying to figure out, the, the bobblehead is like, there's definitely a cutoff point, but it might be as late as Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And I'm wondering whether it is like another instance well, where... Well, I don't think so, because just the next year, he's doing Out of Sight, and Out of Sight sold me. I fucking love that Yeah, movie. but he's he's very bobblehead in that, but again, it's like, a, it's a role that bobblehead works for. Okay. Um, But yeah, I think it's it's... He, it's a, it is comfort is the thing. It's like he becomes comfortable as a leading man yeah. in the, but distinctly after this, right? And unfortunately, this is the movie where he needed to be the most right. commanding leading exactly. man in the history of cinema, right. or the movie instantly falls apart. Um, I'm not saying I, I like some of the touches that he adds to the Bruce Wayne characterization. I think. You know, Christian Bale owes him a lot for initiating the rich jerk kind of side right. of Bruce Wayne. Except here, it's not an act. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's also helped in this movie by an underdeveloped plot line involving his girlfriend, Elle McPherson, that just goes right. nowhere, you know? Which which also, there's a par- there's a, a parallel to Batman Begins with all of uh, Christian Bale's, like, women that are just like actors yeah. so I spent the entirety of this movie thinking at some point it's going to be revealed that Al McPherson is just his beard <laughs> but it's like oh no that's supposed to be a genuine romantic relationship be, yeah that she wants to spend the rest of her life with him but I mean it's it's I mean once you get into the women in this movie uh, I don't know if Joel Schumacher just doesn't know how to direct women but I mean, Elle McPherson, I've never seen a successful performance by her on screen, I'm afraid. Um, I Alicia haven't Silverst- seen it since... Alicia Silverstone and yeah. uh, Uma Thurman are capable of good performances, but they do not give them here. Yeah. So something is up. Something is rotten in the state of Well, let me ask you Lady about Denmark. Uma Thurman, because... I mean, what is it that you find so distasteful about that performance? Because it's not any less campy or broad than Arnold Schwarzenegger is. It's just, I think it's just misjudged. On both ends. It's not helped by how it's written, which is extreme. It's written in an extreme. <laughs> we have we have a character who's pro-climate change and something of a, of a like, feminist character, and she's written in the most misogynistic right. and anti-scientific way. So that, that hurts her. I just think, you know, the vocal choices are particularly are all wrong. Why? She's trying to sound like a 60s bombshell, and I realized subsequently Michelle Pfeiffer was doing that as well, but she was <laughs> she integrated it into the whole performance. But when you don't integrate it, into the performance, and when you're just speaking like this and intoning everything <laughs> like this, it's just a fake voice. Yeah, I think she just misjudged the whole thing. Um, yeah, bas- basically, she's basically she's doing Poison Ivy as you know that scene in Pulp Fiction where she, the dance contest scene where she leans into the microphone and goes Vincent Vega. Yeah. Just do the whole movie like that. 
Oh, and someone funny. needs to so, so, Joel Schumacher. I was, gonna, I don't know I was just going to say. So we got. I mean, I would blame Joel Schumacher though. Yeah. Well, I mean, comparatively, you have to say that because you've seen Uma Thurman so good elsewhere. Right. Uh, although Joel Schumacher, first person to think of putting Vivica Fox and then Uma Thurman in a movie together. Right. <laughs> Vivica Fox is in this movie. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, Bane is in this movie. <laughs> Bane is in Batman and Robin. I cannot say this enough times. <laughs> I have a note here that says... Bane is so mindless and lame. Yeah, he's like... I mean, he's given nothing to do. He, he, well, he's like he is like... He's the sketch version character of... Even though it comes before the Tom Hardy version of Bane. Because he's essentially the same in, in every way except execution. <laughs> So, like, at the end of the movie, when I was like, when, when they unhooked his life support, uh-huh. I thought, that's the way they get rid of Tom Hardy's Bane. It's no more complicated than that. You turn off his mask. Yeah, right. But I was just thinking, like, I guess what what Tom Hardy and Nolan and what everyone do, they, they kind of pretend that he's not that easy to defeat. Right? Mm-hmm. But there's no pretense of that here. Right. <laughs> it is like literally take off his you know cut off his tubes he's gone you can do he's it there. while being choked yeah right <laughs> um so i kind of like that i like that contrast but you know the whole monosyllabic thing you know like commitment to a bit um is admirable but being monosyllabic and oh, repeating yeah, right. the last thing that someone just said <laughs> yeah doesn't doesn't There's work in every scene. I there was a pati- I mean that that goes for the whole mo- you know that goes for the whole movie I guess. Um, if you think of the ice puns mm-hmm. and how that works, it's like one ice pun, even two, is fine. If every time you open your mouth, it's an ice right. pun, it kind of diminishes the effect. So does Bane. There was one point I was saying, like, please don't repeat what she just said um but he goes exit we don't need that (laughs) but it's commitment to a bit which is kind of again like a thing like a camp kitsch thing i guess it's like rule of three doesn't apply it's as it's you go as you just keep you you know you keep bludgeoning that joke to death (laughs) right well i'll tell i'll say this for the movie uh, I had forgotten that Poison Ivy and Bane came from South America. Because that doesn't right. seem clear when they're introduced. Like I just mm-hmm. like before that before that's known, I, I put down a note that says, Meanwhile, in the lesser known jungles of Gotham. Well, if you know, like if that. You'd have t- <laughs> let's face it, that their castle was in Transylvania. Yeah. <laughs> right. You will not convince me that that is not Transylvania. Uh, or wherever Fra- Dr. Frankenstein's from. Remember, everyone, this is a cartoon. The repeated, yeah. the repeated refrain from director Joel Schumacher. So based on that, I mean, the guy got what he wanted. 
I was saying to you earlier about placeholder dialogue. We were talking about placeholder dialogue earlier. Yeah. I wrote down this line. It's maybe my favorite line in the entire movie when Batman is describing to Alfred and to Robin or Dick Grayson what happened with (laughs) with Dr. Victor Freeze, which, by the way, Dr. Victor Freeze spelled fries. But I'll put that aside for now. Yeah, carry on. At one point he says, this happened and this happened. So uh, he fell into a vat in which the the liquid was 50 degrees below zero. Mm -hmm. His next line is, he lived somehow. And I just know that there was a better explanation. They were like, well, just put he lives somehow and we'll come up with a way that that makes sense later scientifically. Well, yeah, I, I was fascinated by this scene. First of all, like when they're looking at that footage of um, Dr. Victor Freeze, even his name is a pun. I know. His real name. Yeah. Um, that it looks like they're in the Batcave watching scenes from Junior. <laughs> Because it's Schwarzenegger in a white coat, right? Like doing doing experiments, so um, that was great. And I was just I was just struck, and this is probably a, like an underwritten thing as well. Just how fucking callous everyone is in that scene. Mm-hmm. Like, Robin's like doesn't care. It's like there's no empathy for what happened to him. Yeah. Um, and then Alfred's having a heart attack in the background. Nobody, <laughs> Nobody notices. Nobody notices him. Um, so it's very, it's it's very odd, very very odd scene. Uh, and I think I think an oversight. Although later on in the movie, when Alfred is incapacitated and the Wayne Manor is just covered in pizza boxes, <laughs> I'm like, you're just scum. You know, like, you're just rich scum. You can't even clean up your own fucking pizza boxes. You piece of shit. Uh, and it's, uh, but then I get, you know, like, Robin is, like, working, like, Dick Grayson is working class, so just living in Wayne Manor for, like, two years, Has turned he's already into, become yeah, right. rich scum. Blue blood, yeah. And Barbara, too. They're all just now fucking Can you explain parasites. to me how she is the niece of Alfred, right? A lot of questions here. She has no accent. <laughs> she is, yeah, but she, her parents are British and she grew up in Britain. Right. She has no British accent. She went to a, a, a college called Oxbridge Academy, which you won't be surprised to find out does not exist. Of and is actually based on a, a misunderstanding of the term Oxbridge, which is a contraction, which is a um, colloquial contraction of Oxford and Cambridge, right. which are two separate places <laughs> and two separate university institutions. Um, Oxbridge. Speaking, you know, like, uh, you know, in in relation to George Clooney's bobblehead, mm-hmm. someone, Joel Schumacher on this movie, needs to stop Alicia Silverstone curling her lips. Yeah, yeah. If you have to, like, clockwork orange, hold them open. I don't care. <laughs> Just fuck it. it. It is... It is spectacularly distracting. <laughs> it's a lip-curlingly bad 
performance on both sides of the paradigm. Um, <laughs> do you have any you have any counter feelings about Batgirl, aka Barbara? I to uh, me it, Pe- Penny what Pe- not Pennywise? What's he called? Pennyweather? What's his name? Um, uh, Pennyworth. Pennyworth. No. No. Yeah. I, not Pennywise. Now no, that would be a that, that would be would a be great twist. <laughs> if Alfred just said, well, I mean, later on in the movie he becomes Max Headroom. I know. Is it really much different if he became a spider, you know, <laughs> or a clown? Um, I'll tell you. I'll tell you what I think. I'll tell you what I think about it by referring to something we talked about in the last episode. In the last episode, I asked you, can you have a good Batman movie that includes Robin? <laughs> so so my feelings about Batgirl are... Absolutely, it's just uh, too much excess. Mm. It to, This movie felt stuffed to the gills with trying to show the origin story of Poison Ivy, refer to the mm-hmm. origin story of Mr. Freeze. And Bane. As well as include the origin story of Bane. And Dr. Rudwell. <laughs> while trying to have a subplot involving partnership, while including Batman's... Well... <laughs> Oh, for fuck's sake. My, my least favorite thing in this movie is Batman trying to reconcile his feelings in talking with Alfred. So anyway, you've got all... We, we've, we've... Really? I, I, I like that, but I was aware that we've what I kind don't of like, done this before. Well, like, what I don't the like last two movies. is... What I don't like, and it's not that it's a bad idea, but what I don't like is this idea that a grown fucking man says to Alfred, well, rather, Alfred says to to Bruce Wayne, Batman is an attempt to control death itself. And then Bruce Wayne says, but I can't... <laughs> Again, I think they accidentally subbed a line that was uh, describing Mr. Freeze. So he says, but I can't control it, can I? A conclusion that a child comes to. Yeah, we're all going to fucking die, Bruce. So at whether, any rate, whether with intent, all whether of that intention. there, it seems yeah. a bit much going on to add Batgirl. <laughs> yeah. And it, it feels more that, like anything, you know, I we talked how Schumacher wanted to do another movie, but it feels to me like this movie was, listen, we might not get another chance. Put it all in. Unless the opposite is true, and they're and they're envision basically envisioning adding a new sidekick every movie. Well, yeah, like a different a different bat and bird. When when uh, when Arnold Schwarzenegger says bat and bird, <laughs> his Austrian accent is so thick. I thought he said Battenberg, like the cake. <laughs> um. Yeah, no, I mean, I completely... There's no There's no space in this film for Batgirl. No. Uh, there's no way for her to really enter the the other storylines. And I, I, But 
with all that in mind, I still think somehow Alicia Silverstone gives an astonishingly bad performance. Um, yeah, I mean, she. Doesn't, but again, she I, I, I don't know anything. Yeah, I mean, she is based. So I think El Mc, McPherson to me just doesn't. I can't see. Yeah, her there's as another an storyline. I mean, this movie right. is just. <laughs> But, um, Uma Thurman is 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 very bad, but we know she can be very good. Elise Silverstone, we know she can be very bad. She knows she can be very good. Here, she's very bad. So I think it's like all of it doesn't work. Yeah. With regards to women, so I'm gonna lay the blame at Joel Schumacher because within that, he should have got one and a half good performances. <laughs> all right. Well, lay it at his feet, we will, and we're going to take a break, and then we'll come back and finish talking about Batman and Robin right after this. If you're anything like me, you spend the majority of the day wondering whether you want coffee, beer, or wine. Whichever way you fall, Brew Bar has you covered. Located in the heart of 3rd Avenue Village in glorious downtown Chula Vista, California, which is also my neck of the woods, Brew Bar is a coffee shop, bar, and eatery rolled into one delightful package. Tim and Alex run the place, and let me tell you listeners, these guys know their coffee. And after you've been in their company, so will you. They turned me on to pour over, and it's literally all I drink now. If for some crazy reason you don't want to try the best coffee in the world, they've got espresso drinks, all kinds of teas, and even coffee cocktails. You heard me. Coffee tails. And we're just getting started. Bottle service on craft beer and wine, alcoholic and caffeinated potions, an all-day food menu with plenty of vegan options. All served up in an atmosphere hip enough to know you're getting the best quality, but not too hip that you feel the need to drive to 7-Eleven and get a bucket of brown swill. Brew Bar. It's the best place to be for beer, wine, coffee and tea. And if you go, you might even see me. And we are back yet again, ladies and gentlemen. Tom and I are here discussing Batman and Robin. <laughs> which is known, by the way, Tom, as the number one worst movie in the fir- 50 worst movies ever by Empire Magazine. Oh, that's that's uh, <laughs> offensively wrong. <laughs> I, I didn't look at the rest I, I, of the I'm list. Gonna say, I'm going to keep saying this. I, I don't understand why people would bear such a grudge against this movie, even if they don't like it. There's so much ill will towards it. Yeah, there really is. It's it's it has that faint ring of, I mean, it's you know, if you, if you take the individual movie out, and you just think of it in terms of like what fandom does with things it doesn't like, it's pretty mm-hmm. consistent. You know, it's like, it's like that's not my Batman, kind of. You know, right. Luke Skywalker doesn't have a beard and drink milk from a weird alien teat. It's just all the same <laughs> bullshit. And I'm like, yeah. you know, you can have more than one vision of something, even if it's popular and big. 
I was getting some food yesterday and, uh, you know, kind of saw an old friend outside of the place who was talking with some other guys and just happened to talk about us recording this thing for the Batman series. Mm. And we got to talking and one of them did say, oh, yeah, Michael Keaton, like I could kick his ass. And I just looked, I kind of shook my head and said, I know who you are. <laughs> You're that guy. You read the comics, right? And, and, goes, uh, yeah. and also, that was the point. Right. That, that, was, that was why it was interesting, guys. Exactly. <laughs> Do you really want Luke Skywalker from the end of Return of the Jedi? Don't think so. <laughs> you don't know what you want, and you're blaming everyone else for it. Anyway. Here's a question for you. Why is Gotham filled with so many fucking neon criminals? It's <laughs> a good question. Maybe uh, maybe Joel Schumacher has money in Big Day Glow. It's presented as a fetish in this movie. Well, yeah, I mean... Joel Schumacher. It's funny because one of the things I like about this movie uh, in relation to Batman Returns, in the same way that, you know... Tim Burton's kinkiness comes out like full throttle yeah. in Batman Returns. Joel Schumacher's kinkiness uh, is loud as a loud free reign here too. Like his his love of uh, erotic male sculpture. Oh my god! You know is this whole movie from looks the bat like... suit to the I mean yeah. <laughs> to the the um, Greco Roman statues that adorn. Uh, Gotham City. There was that, also that adorn observatories that hold up <laughs> observatories on and hold a, them up on a Dutch tilt angle, which I know you're fond of. Oh, for fuck's sake! How does anybody get into that observatory? <laughs> it's like uh, it's like something from a silent movie comedy. Like every day, every day you have to go in and slide to one yeah, wall exactly. and then slide <laughs> back to the other. <laughs> You can imagine Buster like, Keaton in there with a lot of pulleys. <laughs> this movie looks like a World's Fair hopped up on, like, mushrooms and steroids. Yeah. Um, but, I, I mean, I just thought there was there was a couple there was a couple of things where, I've like, they've really gone to town, gone to town, gone to city yeah. on the idea that Gotham, <laughs> Gotham is just one big visual joke. You know, there's, like, right. bu- buildings that cannot possibly exist exist um and when we get to not with the phys- with the physical world as we know it today they go past a they go past a like a bar it's called the head room and there's just three big heads on the sign <laughs> like statues of three big heads on the busts yeah. i suppose you call it and i kind of thought i mean that or that also you know alerts you to the fact that alfred will become max headroom later in the movie but yeah. um i just you know i I was just like, everything you see is just just a joke. It's like a naked gun movie or something. Um, and I felt that about the when when Doctor Rudwo is addressing the the UN uh, in his laboratory. Uh huh. And that like the the way that the UN are visualized, I'm like, that is Our, how it would be visualized in a naked straight, gun movie. <laughs> it's straight out of the first naked gun yeah. movie. <laughs> I mean, completely. It's hysterical. So, I I mean, one of the things, again, going back to, to Forever, 
it, again there was a there was a certain inconsistency about how Gotham City was resented. For instance, we're supposed to believe that this neon thing, this kind of neon like super techno metropolis only happens at night because the shots of the daytime Val Kilmer's just walking around in what looks like any other kind of city yeah but here you get a sense that like it's inconsistency is certainly there because it, it's a jacked up it's image of the city but that yeah. jacked up image of the city is there the whole time it's not yeah. like anyone ever just walks into a building like it's you know in they're in the middle of new york it's like it's it's all stupid all the time in gotham city well, that's in this a, you know uh, we're going back to my continuing list of things that always bothered me about this movie and the city is one of the things that always bothered me about this city or about this movie i mean it's built i, I it's built on a fundamentally flawed premise but I feel this is I feel this is going for it a little more. I don't feel it's but it being less beholden to Tim Burton's vision, it actually improves the look of the city. Even though, yeah, I, I like that. The, uh, it feels less slapped on to an existing premise, but what it replaces it with is just fucking ludicrous. <laughs> Thank you. But so, but uh, you know. I think there's enjoyment to be had there in the, you know, in the sort of um, Batman Amex card sense of like, right. yeah. we're, we're in on the joke, we're in on the gag. This There's no way that this observatory could physically exist right. in reality, just as there's no way that there's a Batman Amex card that he never leaves the cave without. Well, and the other thing, you know, that occurs to me that that falls in line with the city is the increased use the increased use of CGI mm. in this movie that doesn't really look you know very good and again i think it's a, it's a, a Schumacher thing or the people that, that they choose to do their um effects and their miniatures well i think it's also the time era i think we yeah. are in a time where it's they were asking a little better, the effects though. They were asking the effects to do just a little bit more than the effects were able to do well. Yeah, hundred percent. So yeah, it's still in a very videographic stage yeah. where you can't unsee the artificiality of it. Yeah. But it doesn't seem to me that this movie has a problem with. It certainly doesn't care. This movie the, the <laughs> problem with everything appearing like a cartoon. So right, it kind of fits. That was the, the mantra. <laughs> yeah, it kind of it, it it kind of fits. Although I agree with you, I think. Uh, I think this is the kind. Of, I mean, again, going back to Batman Forever, this is the movie where it's okay that your miniatures look like toys in the bath. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like this is more okay in the framework of this bizarre piece of cinema than it is Batman Forever, which you know is is doing spect is trying to do spectacle more straight down the middle than this one is this is this is jank mm -hmm. i don't think okay. they're going for spectacle i think they're going for surreal almost in visual style <laughs> i'll say it's a mushroom trip this fucking movie yeah is what it is um the what's really kind of i mean you 
you the first thing you said was like how far we've fallen from Batman Returns. Yeah. Where I really noticed that is more about, you know, characterization and politics. Everything we said about Batman Returns. Sure. Uh is kind because of, we, we kind of replicate a lot of the same dynamics. So, you know, po- Poison Ivy is a discussion of feminism, but where like it wasn't that Catwoman as a feminist was entirely endorsed a hundred percent. The complications and the contradictions were there, but here it just seems to me that you've introduced this powerful female character just to shit all over her for being powerful and female, right? Um, and then to have like in the fight in the in the denouement where Batgirl and Poison Ivy fight, it's like, yep, that's literally feminism fighting itself. <laughs> Well done, male screenwriter. Yeah. You've cancelled out the threat against your patriarchy. Well done. Yeah. Um, and she said, even, I think Barbara says something on the lines of, uh, you know, this, you give women a bad name or something. I'm like, right. oh my God. Yeah. This couldn't be more on the nose that it's about keeping women down. And then, and then the, you know, the fact that at the end of all this, Poison Ivy ends up suffering a lifetime of torture. Mm-hmm. That's what we're told is going to happen. He's, she's going to be ruthlessly tortured uh, by Mr. Freeze Forever. for the rest of her existence. Yeah. Wow. I mean, you know, any agency she has is, I mean, it's not only undone. Null and void. <laughs> you know, it's below zero in, in every possible way. Right. So that was upsetting also the fact that you know she she is introduced as someone who's uh trying to combat climate change and that is also seen as something that you shouldn't be aspiring to yeah right (laughs) yeah (laughs) especially now you know it's like i think i think one of the ways in which a lot of people have highlighted the good in this movie is that it has an environmental super villain and that you know if the movie had just kind of tweaked things around she would be she would be the kind of anti-hero that mr freeze is yeah but you know mr freeze is more of a like a sentimental yeah because he's good-hearted really he's a good-hearted man he who just wants to help wants his wife to help his wife exactly uh, yeah so it's it's bad that 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 element of it is really disappointing because you know, visually and conceptually, I think there's a lot that's in this movie that's quite radical. Uh, but where, you know, where Batman Returns kind of had that too, but also had a, a kind of depth and a complexity to it, this this movie really uh, shits the bed on that one, I think. No, oh, yeah. Even though it sets agree. up the same possibilities that you could have a really interesting female villain you could have a really interesting version of batgirl but doesn't doesn't exist here yeah no yeah (laughs) sorry sorry to where where does this leave you (laughs) are you talking yourself out of your ranking no i just well because i'm not i you know i'm I'm trying to, you know, I'm putting, I'm trying to take away the, 
the way this movie is culturally framed as a bad movie and putting that mm-hmm. aside and trying to, you know, like f- grassroots. <laughs> There's a good one. Here's another <laughs> intellectual fun. Uh, jar puppet roots. <laughs> like building from the bottom. What have we got here? We've got a movie that is, it is deliciously bad. That is like taking a big swing. That is uh, at times good enough to pass muster. Uh, so well, you're adds on your up, own there. Adds up just to a bad movie, to, to a good movie, <laughs> no, no. just beyond a bad movie. So that's where that's where I'm I'm on that side of the fence. But it's a uh, I'm still caught in the barbed wire. Yeah, but we can Yeah, exactly. I mean, we keep talking about bad acting and bad writing and bad ideas, and you know, it's you know, but not across the board. Only one gender. Well, see, but I disagree. You know, I I, I don't find Clooney's performance it's engaging. It's mixed. I think I don't thing, find this... O'Donnell's performance engaging. <laughs> Even though this movie's called Batman and Robin, I periodically forget Chris O'Donnell is a character. And that's movie. what I mean. Yeah, like we forget that he's in this movie, and part of this movie's storyline is their push and pull between yeah. each other mm-hmm. as to whether or not they're going to trust each other. Which, again, is something that, even though we've seen it, we saw it exactly the same in the last movie. Right. It's yeah. still some Like, I don't mind there being tension between them. I don't think that's a bad starting point. Yeah, but most of the tension in this movie is based on who's going to be able to kiss Poison Ivy. Right. That's which where... is also only based on the pheromones she's breathing into their nostrils 27 times throughout the entire like the the number of times she's using that one trick yeah it's that's a that's a that's where i wish it didn't get tangled up in that i right. like that there's conf, i like that there's conflict between them i also don't like it being kind of competitiveness too i don't i think no, there's yeah. a more it, you could have a more interesting conflict between them that isn't about you know no i'm on it I'm going to do it first. Like, right. that's not interesting either. Um, so I, I completely I completely agree with you there. It's also just not a good look politically for all the, all the locker room talk about how hot Poison Ivy is that we get mm-hmm. from the two of them. Yeah. It's another reason why this movie kind of historically Well, not stinks. just that, but they're... They... The two characters keep framing it as she should be their conquest. Right. Yeah, because the that's, whole that's the ethos of the movie is about it's almost as if Judd Apatow was a was a script editor and it's like, hmm, could we find a way to keep the woman down at the end of this story? <laughs> um <laughs> You know, uh so yeah, I think I I, so it, I hate that their that their dynamic gets wrapped up in that, uh, but you know, cl- cl- what the Batman and Alfred stuff I think is great. I think that really works. I wish, <laughs> and then uh, so like I, I think great is a very kind word to use. Well, I'm I'm glad Alfred is in so much more of the movie, given you know it's like the movie. There's a world in which. You know, this is familiar from sequels. We highlight a supporting character too much and realize that even though we like them, 
they can't carry the movie. But Michael right. Goff, Salford is definitely the exception to that. And then the the Nolan trilogy will with Michael Caine will prove the same thing. It's like you sure. can up this guy's role and it still works. And it's fine. Yeah, you know right. he can be the guy saying, "Would you like a sandwich?" Or he can be the guy who's like the emotional center of the. Of the moral the, compass. Right, exactly. Yeah, the it moral works compass both ways. For, right, yeah. Um, and then he turns into Max Headroom. Now, we've said this several times. <laughs> you are, yeah, you, 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 you've been mentioning this throughout the entire episode. So this, this movie... So wants... this must be a sticking point for you. No, I, I, li- listen, I, I was just... What was weird for me was I was enjoying this on an entirely sincere level of... I like the way they're acting these scenes. I like the emotional through line. This idea of like, now we're caring for Alfred. He's always cared for me. I was like, this is lovely stuff. And then, you know, Barbara goes into the Batcave and, uh, well, Alfred is incapacitated. Not even dead. Like, this, well, not even also, dead at this also, point. Also, he's giving her an envelope to deliver to his brother. No eyes but her his brother should see it and yet he seems to know that she is going to open it decide to get onto his computer based on what she sees in it guess his passcode get into the bat cave and watch a dvd of this movie and and yeah exactly you know so but he's programmed he's, his brain. I just want to. Yeah, go he, ahead. He yeah. programmed his brain algorithms into the back cave. Into the and back for some cave. reason, this means he appears as Michael Goth doing Max Headroom. Yeah. Via green screen. Like, doesn't he have a green background, too, on the actual computer screen? Yeah. Plus the fact that oh, you spend boy. the entire movie thinking he's dying from cancer, and it turns out it's McGregor syndrome. McGregor syndrome. <laughs> but then I, but I, I overall like that because then that ties, it, you know, it gives, it justifies the, it ties in with the, it dovetails nicely with the, um, the Mister Freeze plot. So I like that. Uh, but yeah, like e- even so, even in this part of the movie that I can enjoy on a sincere level, uh, they they just pull some crazy shit in the middle of all that, <laughs> right? Oh yeah. I mean, it's like it's because I I feel I feel that way about pretty much everything here is, but not that they can't leave it all like. I don't know if it's better or I don't know if it's better or worse that way. Like I'm yeah. less conflicted like the because the Alfred storyline like seems like it's from a normal movie. And so I'm sort of like in order to make it part of this movie you kind of have to have him turn into Max Headroom <laughs> at some point. Like oh, only man. something that bizarre will break the barrier between a normal movie and this movie. You are willing to carry an awful lot of water for this movie. Well, and and good on you for it, sir. And let let me let me get to uh, the uh, what I really wanted to talk about. All right, which is my credit check. Of course, well, because you you brought up a carrying a lot credit of credit check twenty twenty one. Tom Stewart, go ahead. You you mentioned carrying a lot of water. A whole different studio is responsible 
for all the ice and water in this movie. I believe that. Um, so obviously Warner Brothers could had to outsource all its ice and water needs here. <laughs> I also want to draw your attention to the fact that a credit in this movie, Mr. Schwarzenegger's drama coach. <laughs> I didn't notice that. Oh, my God. <laughs> to which my reaction was, Arnie's still learning acting? <laughs> I was like, this guy is a bigger movie star than anyone else in this movie. Possibly anyone in any film ever in the world. Oh, and he still has... But then I thought, oh, good, good on him, you know? Oh, yeah. It, it's, You're never uh, done I, learning. I, yeah. Uh, see if you can understand this. I did All not. Right, okay. Nora Freeze and Principal Copsicles by Rick Baker. What does that sentence mean? And why is Rick Baker, noted makeup prosthetics artist, responsible? I know that he was involved. Like... So is I Nora assume... Freeze his wife? Yeah, it has to be. Okay. So he has... He's responsible for the bubble tech. What's a principal copsicle? I'm going to say the cops that he freezes at the beginning. Okay, that, that 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 makes sense. Okay. I think that's a good guess. So, so... By the way, totally those cutaways to all the people in Gotham City getting frozen <laughs> with their one line of dialogue, totally Superman 2. Right, right. right. The dog getting frozen mid P. Yeah. Um, we have to check, make sure the dog's okay. Yep. the the weird the the weirdness of this movie is not helped by the fact that the recording artist for the outro track is <laughs> who? You go ahead. R. Kelly. I couldn't remember. Oh Notice, no! Notice, noted pedophile, rapist, kidnapper. Oh, fuck. R. Kelly with his, uh, I'm going to say hit, Gotham City. Oh, ends this movie. And the movie has an end screen for the first time in the franchise. They are really working overtime to reinforce yeah. their branding and their logo. And also, this movie... For a series that's ending. Yeah, for a movie that's ending. And also, this movie ends with a um, with another running towards the camera. Yeah. Like plus, I said, plus this Batgirl. movie begins and ends exactly like the last movie begins and ends. Which is like the Batman TV series, to be fair. Yeah. You know, that kind of, like... I think it's... Uh, it's very strange. So you could work back from the credits of this movie and <laughs> the, the 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 strange experience of this movie does not end when the movie ends. No, yeah. <laughs> so there we go. But I mean, you know, in, uh, just to mention the soundtrack as well, this is a far... And this kind of speaks to how this movie is different from Batman Forever. We talked about Batman Forever had, you know, some of the biggest recording artists of the time. Yeah. And this is more on the alternative side. You know, Coolio at the time, I mean, it's before Coolio was huge. R. Kelly is obviously popular, but 
only in a certain genre at the moment. Smashing Pumpkins, who are very alternative. So it's a different vibe yeah. on the soundtrack, too. And it's fascinating how we go from, like, Prince to Susie and the Banshees to right. everyone in recording. <laughs> yeah. To back to, like, slightly alternative, underground Some, yeah, edgy stuff. slightly weird. It's but fun. that's just... that, And all of that just goes... Uh, to say exactly how fucking weird this movie is. And ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to let us know how weird this movie is, please, by all means. I'm sure we've not mentioned some very strange things. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure we've missed a few. Send us an email to everythingsequel at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, and please let us know. Rate and review us. We need the help. All right, for Tom Stewart of Lonesome Whistle Productions, I am Michael Schantz of the How Dare You Award. Say goodbye, Tom. Ice to see you. <laughs> that is not actually from this movie. That is McBain from The Simpsons. Perfect. Prior to the release Fucking of this movie. Great. <laughs> but you tell me that that line could not be in this movie. It should have been. I. That is an honorary quotable. It should have been fucking. You telling me there wasn't ice room for ice to see you? <laughs> All right, stay tuned, everybody. We're gonna be pitching sequels to this series next. Goodbye. How the fuck are we gonna do that? <laughs> Your guess is as good as mine. Until next time.